Amen. All right. If you have a Bible, go to Colossians chapter three. As you're turning there, uh, do you do you remember if you're old enough uh, a romantic comedy that debuted on the big screen in 1999, which my son pointed out to me the other week was last century. And I was like, wow, wow. That's one way to look at it, son. <laughs> and it was just, it made me laugh. But back in 99, this romantic comedy that starred Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles and even Joseph Gordon-Levitt called Ten Things I Hate About You. I got some fans in the room. All right. I wonder, no, I'm not even going to go there. I was going to ask you about your Bible knowledge, if you could reel it off that fast. But we'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. Kidding. At face value, when I watched it, Back in 1999, it would just seem like any other romantic comedy, right? It would strike you that way. But there is one detail that when I found that out later, made me think about that movie completely differently because this certain piece of information I'm about to tell you gives credibility to an otherwise silly romantic comedy. The movie is actually based on a play written by William Shakespeare. For whatever reason in my brain, it went from dumb movie to, oh, maybe there's a point, right? Because like we just, we hear the name William Shakespeare and we think, oh, that guy was smart. He wrote great plays that meant more than what I thought they meant. And that maybe it's just me. Maybe you are more into the arts than I am, but that little piece of information about the context in which that movie is written and filmed actually matters to how you view and think about the meaning behind the movie, right? Similarly, the Bible was not written, are you tracking with me, was not written to 21st century United States of America Christians. Are you following me? This is very important because I'm going to I'm going to pick on all of us who are 21st century United States of Americans. Okay? Because we tend to think <laughs> Stay with me. We tend to think that most of the world and most of the things that happen in the world should revolve around us. Now listen, I love the United States of America. I have a grandfather who was a Purple Heart in World War II, and I have his flag hanging in my house from his funeral. I am not dogging the country that we live in and the freedoms that we enjoy. I, I am a big fan. And every time I hear the national anthem, I think about my grandfather, and it makes me emotional. So uh, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we are one experiment in the history of the world. And it's been a 100% success rate that the nations that rise fall. And so whether that happens tomorrow or 300 years from now or 3,000 years from now, at the end of the day, we as followers of Jesus are not citizens of this place first. We are citizens of heaven, Scripture tells us. And we longingly await the coming of our King. We've been saying for weeks, just propping up this idea that as we look around and we see the good and we draw near to the broken and we participate in the future, that that means that God's kingdom is coming on earth 
as it is in heaven. And we get to participate in that. Jesus told us to pray that way. But it also means that though we are already seeing some of those things, we are not yet experiencing all that God has for his people and for this world. And so it's important for us to think about that, the fact that scripture was not written with our ideals in place. And so super important that in the immediate cultural context, there was a crafted understanding that would have meant something to that reader at that time. And I want to look at that with you today and think critically about what this passage is addressing because what you'll often find is not that as it has been accused in our culture of the Bible being barbaric and misogynistic and all these things, that actually it was written in a culture that was barbaric and misogynistic. And what the Bible actually does is it will come into those times and spaces and places and cultures and begin to move the needle towards where God's ideals are and not man's. And so very important for us to keep that in context. So as we come to this, that something triggers in your mind, if, if God wrote it, it's good. Amen? And so we come here, and I lay that out because as you get to this, on this Mother's Day, uh, Colossians 3.18 is one of those texts. It's one of those texts that the culture that we live in would point to and say, see, you can't explain that in any other way than what it says. And we would simply say, well, that would be like watching a movie and not knowing William Shakespeare wrote it. It's important. It's an important part of because Heath Ledger and William Shakespeare do not occupy the same place in my mind. They just don't because they're different people and they played a different role in that movie. And so Super important for us as we look at this and how you and I and us relate to it that the Bible is going to begin with the husband-wife relationship, move to kids, and then move to slaves. So he's the, the author of this book, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to go straight at the things that those people struggled with and straight at the things that we struggle with. And not shy away from it. And I don't want you to either. Because it's very important to not read this in our modern context. But to take the principle that is there and bring it into our modern context. So super, super important as we think about what God wrote to them. And how it applies to us. So Colossians chapter 3. It will be on the screen if you don't have it. And you can also take notes if you want in the YouVersion Bible app. And follow along with us there. But verse 18 says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. Kids, you paying attention? In everything, son. That's what it says right there in the Bible. He's giving me the look. And then verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only 
when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. There's one of the ones you see on t-shirts and coffee cups that if you put it in context, doesn't exactly mean what we meant when we put it on the t-shirt and the coffee cup, right? It's actually written to slaves. (laughs) Suddenly we don't want the coffee cup, right? Verse 23 is whatever you do, work at for the Lord. Verse 24, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven, that you also have a master in heaven. In this cultural moment that this was written in, compared to our society, women were viewed as basically worthless. And they, they had certain things that they were needed for, and beyond that, they were to just be quiet and to do what they were supposed to do. And so that's the cultural moment. They, they had no authority at all. And e- even when Jesus came to this earth and first introduced himself to women after his resurrection... The fact that it was women who came and found out was significant because as they went and told people, they wouldn't have had any credibility. There there wouldn't have been any reason for those men to listen to those women that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead. But Jesus has and is building a different culture than the one that they found themselves in. Because immediately, and this is significant background information, is that immediately when those women came and told those disciples, they got up and ran to the tomb. So Jesus is building a completely different culture around how men and women relate to each other. And in that time period, it was incredibly significant that he would choose to reveal himself first to a group of women. Very important that he's beginning to shift the culture of how men and women relate to each other into what he actually designed. Not what that culture of the day had set forth. And so they're moving there. And, and I'll, I'll just, I want to put this in context to, to help you understand that th- this was happening not just in the Bible, but in culture. I want to give you a couple names that you've heard and then let you in on how they wrote at the time. Around 350 to 400 years earlier than this, you'll know this name, Aristotle, reflecting on what Socrates wrote. So these are names you've heard, I'm sure. Massive names in our history wrote this. Listen to what he said. The temperance of a man and of a woman. Now listen, these are not biblical. Okay, so stay with me. I'm just building the cultural context of the day. Okay. You're going to know why in a second. Temperance of a man and of a woman or the courage and justice of a man and a woman are not, as Socrates maintained, the same. 
So this is Aristotle reflecting on Socrates and agreeing. Okay, you tracking with me? It's not as Socrates the same. The courage of a man is shown in commanding. <laughs> and of a woman in obeying. Any subscribers? No, <laughs> don't answer that question. That was earlier than Jesus walking on the earth. Okay, so that, that's the cultural context. Bring it forward, Josephus, another name you might have heard, living at the same time, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, writing in this same time, wrote this, Wives must be servitude to their husbands, a servitude not imposed by violent ill treatment, but promoting obedience in all things. Okay, this is the culture. The, the, this is a master obedience culture. And so Paul comes in and he's writing to that culture who for hundreds of years has been following this path that women do play a role and it's in servitude to their husband. And so this is the culture that Paul comes and writes this passage. And so Paul takes this code of conduct, if you will, and he makes the vision Jesus. And he makes the vision Christian. Think about this. He does come to the woman first, and he's going to turn that upside down from what culture would say. So in culture, remember, we just read two examples where women are told that they just need to figure out what it looks like to obey their husband. Paul comes and he uses a different word than obey. And it's very significant. Paul does not come and say, wives, obey your husbands in the Lord as is fitting in the Lord because this is right. That's not what he says. And it's incredibly important that you know that that's not what he said. It's not in the Greek as obey. It's not. It's not obey. It's submit. Why is it submit and not obey? Because God is taking this and making the vision Jesus. So if if the culture is saying wives need to obey their husbands, here's where Paul comes straight at it and takes this. And he says, what if the woman, what if the wife didn't love and serve her husband because she had to, but because she wanted to, and she wanted to serve Jesus in that moment. Now stay with me because that's not where the text stops. But Paul begins to lay out a completely different relationship for husband and wives. He says, wives, don't obey your husband just to obey, just because you're supposed to. Let's think about if your vision is Jesus and you come into this relationship, and at least in our day and age, we get to choose that, and we get to enter into that willingly, then we make the decision, wives, that that we're going to love and serve our husband because my vision is Jesus. And where Jesus says, lay down your life for others, you will find your life. That it's actually in that submitting to your husband, not obeying your husband, but in submitting to him to love and serve him because you love him and want to serve him, that you will find peace. But he doesn't stop there because that was countercultural enough, by the way. 
just Paul saying, actually, you don't really need to just obey your husband in servitude. It's actually different than that. You, you can submit to them willingly in the Lord and love and serve. But that isn't all that Paul said, is it? What he says next would not be in the secular writings of the day. And I couldn't find you a quote from the day because what Paul says next was incredibly countercultural. When he says this, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We could go even farther in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for her. That would not be okay in culture of the day. That would not be okay. Because what, what he's saying is, what if the husband, the ruler, the master, the head honcho, didn't just have a wife or a woman to serve him or provide him with an heir. But what if the husband loved his wife? And husbands, listen to this, was never harsh with her. I'm working on that. Amen. He's painting a different picture here. Wildly countercultural. This was altogether different from the cultural code of the day. It was in support of equality as God's image bearers in a two-way relationship of love and serve and honor because other places like in Ephesians talk about that mutual submission to each other. When God created Adam and Eve, he looked at all that he created and said it was good. When he looked at Adam and Eve, he said, let us, the Trinity, make man in our image and in the image and likeness of God. He created them equals in the sight of God. And so this particular text wasn't, listen to me. This particular text is not a blanket call for all wives everywhere to submit to their totalitarian husbands for all time. If you pluck part of verse 18 out of its context and just say, wives, submit to your husbands, you might be able to pull that. But when you read it in context and in the audience that it was written to, that is not what Paul's saying. It's actually completely countercultural to what was being said. This was God, again, bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven in biblical relationships where a husband and wife want to, in Jesus, love and serve one another. To outdo one another in showing honor, but let's get practical about that, right? That's all good and well, pastor, when you're preaching on Sunday. But what happens on Thursday when we forgot about your sermon and we have come to a disagreement? And let's pick on the dads and let's go in favor of the wives since it's Mother's Day. And we'll pick on the wives when it's Father's Day. But let's just play this out. What happens, moms, wives... When your husband wants to take the family on a sweet vacation or take a loan out so that we can build the man cave properly. 
or buy a camper for family vacation and he's going to tell you, but it's for the kids. It's for the kids. Then why is it huge? Or that they want to quit their job and start a business. None of these things inherently wrong, right? Yes or no? Are any of those things sinful? No, we wouldn't say that. But you, wife, mom, let's say you at the time believe that it is unwise financially or not thoroughly planned out, of which my wife would have no idea what that feels like. Literally this past week, I told her that I wanted to save money and buy a race car. (laughs) Not like the track kind, but, you know, like just one that's loud and make me feel good when I go into the garage. Pat my ego a little bit. Did I say that to you this week? She's nodding and crying at the same time. This is not this is not looking good. But it's in those moments, right? And I tried to pick vague examples because I'm sure all of us have certain things where we could, we could go and say, this, this is where we were at an impasse. This is where we weren't sure what it looked like for wife to submit to husband and the Lord because it's fitting and pleasing and for the husband to lay down his life, Ephesians 5.25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What do you do when you come to an impasse like that? I want to give you a practical process to work through that I think is super important. If the goal is two-way sacrificial love, then we need to put the principles of Scripture into place in our relationships. And first, that means pray. If we don't pray and bring God into the problem, why would we expect Him to show up and solve the problem? Right? I mean, if I want to buy something and I know I need Camden's approval, I don't just go buy it, right? We've all made that mistake once. (laughs) Right? There there are simple things like having a family budget and having ways that we go about this and having limits to our spending where if we go over that, we agree on it. All these things are super practical tools, but at the end of the day, you can settle on that however your family feels – But if we're not inviting God into the process, we're already failing. Okay? So pray. Invite the Holy Spirit into the process. Then work to come to agreement by laying all that out. So is there a family budget? Do we agree on what that looks like? Do we both want said thing or is it something that we're going to save for because I want to honor you? But it may take 10 years to get your race car. Praise the Lord. Right? Like, there's so many things that go into that, but when you're on YouTube watching the race car, you don't care about all that stuff. Right? And so, what I'm saying to you is practically, like, we, we, we don't make decisions when we're emotional. We come off that mountain, we invite the Holy Spirit in, and then we have a conversation, right? Like, anybody who's ever given you premarital counseling has said to you, communicate, communicate, communicate. And when you're grumpy and don't want to communicate, communicate, right? Like that's always the thing and it needs to be. And so I'm telling you, 
what it looks like to love and serve each other is to, yes, be honest and to lay all those things out and maybe even truly want for your spouse what they're looking for and desire. But if you're the other spouse, God's put your spouse in your life to help you be wise. And so pray, lay all those things out. Don't do it emotionally. And then what happens if you still can't get on the same page because we've all been there too? What happens if we've prayed about it, we've talked about it, and we still don't see eye to eye on it? This is why the scripture talks so much about your larger community. That you, in those moments, have a city group with like-minded believers who have no vested interest in the thing that's at hand that you would feel close enough to and have done enough life with that you would be able to go to your group and say, listen, like we're kind of wrestling with this and, and not feel like you're going to get judged because here's the truth. Listen to me. Every single one of us does the same thing. All of us have the same issues. And the devil would love for you to think that Nobody else experiences what you experience as a couple. And it's just simply not true. It may have a different color on it, but it's the same thing. You, may, you guys may want something different than we want, but we still argue. <laughs> we don't even call it arguing. We call it intense fellowship. <laughs> Amen. You invite the Holy Spirit in. It's just intense fellowship at that point. <laughs> No sleeping on the couch, right? So, so we we do that, and then and then you go beyond that, right? Like uh, if it gets to the degree beyond that, may, maybe you bring in some pastoral help. Maybe you go to older, wiser believers who you trust and have been there, done that. We can expand the level of influence that God's put in your life. In the body of Christ. And I really believe that when you follow God's path for relationships. That the Holy Spirit shows up and he blesses that. And he blesses that. And so don't believe the lies that Satan has put out there. Amen. Paul goes on then and he addresses kids and slaves. Again countercultural. Again, neither of those groups had any sway or significance in society other than to accomplish what they were there to accomplish. Two more groups that, that frankly, wouldn't even get the time that Paul gives them here. And so he says to kids to obey because it pleases the Lord. In Ephesians, he expands on that and says that actually when kids obey their parents and honor their parents, that it actually leads to their life going well, right? And so Jesus loves kids, right? When, when the adults and even his close disciples were pushing kids away from him, Jesus said, no, 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 let the kids come to me, right? And so, so we're actually told to have faith like a child, that we would have so much trust in the Lord as our kids do in us. And so huge parts of God's point.
plan. And so he also speaks to the slave, worthless to society, and says it this way. What if you served your master sincerely, your best, and did it because you love Jesus and not because they deserve anything? And it's super important that we read all of it and we read all of it in context because he doesn't just talk to the slave, right? He says, if the slave will work like that, what could God do? Because Jesus, listen, this is important that this is in the text that Jesus says that he will repay those who do wrong with justice. Right? That's in the text. It's not that God doesn't see the injustice. But he says, if you will live a different vision for your life, then I will show up and I will repay the wrong. And how many of you know God's ways are always better than our ways? Even if we can't totally see it. So important. But he says, you aren't forgotten. You're loved. And you have a place in this society. One where the next part of the text says, if you're a master and you have slaves, you need to do the right thing and treat them justly and fairly. Think more employer-employee than owner and slave. And then he says this, because you have a Lord who is in heaven. <laughs> Mic drop. Right? Like, Just in case you forgot and thought you were the boss, let's keep that in mind. So if I, let me boil all that down, because all of that is relational, right? All of this text is about relationships and loving and serving people. Here's the thing. The kingdom of God doesn't fit neatly into our categories. It doesn't fit neatly into this world's categories. We're called as a holy people to be set apart from this world, but to live in this world, to pray and participate in the fact that God is bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and that we have a totally different thing to offer because what's work, not working out there is causing a lot of questions. And we were made for this time. The church is made for these moments where it's so clear that we need an alternative to what's being offered. And the alternative is found in Christ and his body, the church. And so we come here knowing that all biblical relationships are governed by love and respect because all humans are made in the image of God. Period. So, moms, women, we love you and we respect you. And I want to end my sermon with a blessing for you that comes straight from Scripture, that God would bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And all the men in the room said, Amen. Amen.